Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then his disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put the finger, put my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a few moments now for silent reflection. Gracious God, we come before you at this moment, on this Mother's Day, full of joy and connection and hope and love and thanksgiving and gratitude. We come before you full of disappointment or discouragement or anger or fear, needing to forgive. We come before you depressed and addicted. We come before you resilient and alive. We come before you a beautiful mess. Human beings created in your image and likeness, bearing the image of the divine with all honor and dignity and broken, fractured, failing. Help us to see that you know us in all of our complexity and contradictions, in the ways we're put together, in the ways we feel like we're coming undone, in the ways we believe and in the ways that we're full of unbelief and that you know us and your response is to give yourself to us in the sacrificial love and work 
of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so now, would you teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit in a way that our lives would be transformed? Would you fill our minds with your truth, our hearts with your love, our lives with your grace, and send us out to be your very hands and feet of renewal wherever we go? We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. You know, whenever I come to this passage, this passage is often known as the Doubting Thomas passage, which I think is really unfair. I don't know if you know anybody that has a nickname or if you've received a nickname. Maybe you've received, I have a friend, one of our neighbors is a Commodore in the Navy in charge of, you know, ships, not just a ship, but many ships. And we were talking about call signs for Navy pilots and sharing some of our favorites. He said, you never get a call sign for a good deed. You know, you never get them for your great moments. You always get them for something silly you did or funny you did. And I think that Thomas gets a bad rap in that way. You know, Thomas was known for going on in faith and courage and hope as far as India, sharing the good news of Christ's life, death, and resurrection with many. But he's not known as courageous Thomas. He's not known as adventurous Thomas. He's known as doubting Thomas. And it's because of this moment. And I think we can relate with him. Whenever I talk about doubt and faith, I think about this story of a guy named the Great Blondine, who was a French acrobat in the 1800s, who specialized in walking across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. It's estimated that he crossed Niagara Falls over 300 times on a tightrope. And the first time he did it, the people could hardly watch because they were sure they were about to witness a man going to his death. And then he got good at it. And then he started to make it interesting. One time, halfway across the tightrope, lowering down another rope to the Maid of the Mist, the ship that takes people out into the Niagara Falls, and he pulled back up a bottle of champagne, which he enjoyed in front of all the people, before finishing his crossing across Niagara Falls. Not long after that, he is said to have carried a wooden stove to the center of the tightrope and cooked an omelet, which he then lowered down to the people on the Maid of the Mist. And so this crescendoed one day when he is in front of the crowds, and they would estimate 25,000 people would travel from far and wide in 1870 and 1880 to Niagara Falls to see this on both sides. And he pulls out and reveals a wheelbarrow. And he says, do you think the great Blondine can cross Niagara Falls? And the crowd cheers, yes! Do you think I can push this wheelbarrow across the falls? Yes! Do you think the great Blondine will fall today? No, the great Blondine never falls. And he turns to the crowd and says, who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? It's one thing to trust. It's one thing to assent to something. It's another to get in the wheelbarrow, to put that trust in action. And I think Thomas is a picture for us of what it looks like to have a very real, fragile, fickle faith that actually gets stronger, not because Thomas is so strong, because he can muster up a little more courage, a little more belief, but because he sees that the object of his faith is strong and will never fail and will get him across. Thomas's faith is strong not because of his own courage or his own ability. Thomas's faith is strong because of the object in which he puts his faith. In that way, we see... The doubt's difficult. In many traditions, in many churches, doubts are the worst thing you can have. If you are doubting, if you are questioning, if you have parts of this story that don't make full sense to you, if you are staying up at night sometimes saying, if God is good, why do bad things happen in this world? 
in some communities, that's the worst thing you could say. It proves that you're not faithful, that you're not trusting, that you're not strong enough. And yet here we are with Thomas and Jesus, seeing that in the presence of the resurrected Christ, doubts are actually the doorway to discovery. Doubts are not the worst thing that can happen to you. Your doubts and your questions can be the actual transition points where God does God's best work in your life. So let's examine this today as we take a look at Jesus, the resurrected Christ, and his grace in our doubts, his peace in our fear, his strength in our weakness, and his sending us in a new direction. First, his grace in our doubts. I love the way that John, the gospel writer, narrates this gospel. John is known as one of the eyewitnesses who saw Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And he talks about how at the very end, I've written these things down so that you might come to believe. Okay? John, as an author, has an agenda. And he puts it right out there. He's honest about it. He says, frankly, I could have talked about a whole lot of other things, but I'm focusing it on this so that you might see the character of Christ. And what does he point out? There's this neat meeting where... Jesus' closest friends are in fear. They're behind these locked doors. And Jesus comes and stands in their midst and says, Peace be with you. And he reveals himself as the one who's resurrected from the grave. Now, let that sink in for a moment. These people saw him bleed to death on a cross. These people saw him laid behind a stone tomb with a huge boulder placed in front of it and Roman soldiers sent to protect the grave so that nothing gets in and nothing gets out. It kind of makes sense why he has to reassure them, peace be with you. This is not a moment of danger for you. You're not hallucinating. It is I. But Thomas missed that meeting. We don't know where Thomas was. We don't know if he was at Whole Foods or if he was down at the beach. We have no idea. But he wasn't there. So he returns and they said, we saw the Lord. He says, I will only believe it if I can put my hand in the nail marks in his hands from the cross, if I can put my fingers in the gash in his side from that Roman centurion's spear. And so John narrates a week later when the apostles were together again, this time Thomas was with them. And Jesus walks in and says again to Thomas, the one who didn't believe, the one who in a mountain of evidence and three years of experience of walking with Jesus, seeing him raise Lazarus from the dead, seeing him feed 5,000 people with a few loaves and fish, Thomas, who didn't get it, who was slow to believe, and Jesus walks up to him and does not say, how dare you not believe? You've been at all the Bible studies. You've heard all the sermons. You've seen it all. How do you still not get it? He doesn't say that. It doesn't even cross his mind. He says, peace be with you. I give you my peace. He goes on to specifically say to Thomas, see the nail marks in my hands. Go ahead. See the gash in my side. Go ahead and reach out and touch. Which tells you and tells Thomas that Jesus had heard everything Thomas said the week earlier. He heard all of his questions, all of his doubts. He was there. And his response is not disgust or disdain or impatience. 
His response is, he meets him in his specific questions. You have questions about my hands. Here are my hands. You have questions about my side. Here is my side. He meets Thomas specifically, not in spite of his doubt, but in the midst of his questions, in the midst of his doubt. You see, each of us has reasons not to believe. Each of us has our own fuel for our doubts or for our questions. You may be aware of some of it. Some of it may be subconscious. For example, if we say that Jesus really did rise from the dead, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, who makes all things new, who calls us to follow him with our whole lives, if we agree to that, it means that you lose control of your life. You hand over your will and your control to him, and that is terrifying. We don't hand over our will and our control to anybody. And so instead of face that terrifying truth, we say, I doubt it. I don't think I'm going to explore. Or we relegate him to some sort of middle realm where kind of a tip of the, tip of the hat, you know, I respect Jesus, I respect his teachings, but keep him at a distance and keep his hands off of my life. It's not neutral. Doubt is not neutral. What reasons do you have not to believe? You know, for some of us, our doubts come from our wounds. And we say, if God is so good, why did God let these bad things happen to me? If Jesus is so full of love and connection and joy and restoration, then how come I experience this sort of abuse or neglect or shame in the church? And oftentimes, in that situation, our doubts become coping mechanisms or defense mechanisms. And there's a time for everything. I just want to ask if you're aware of the fuel behind your doubts. What are the wounds that you desire to see healed? And might that be the very place where if you let him, and we'll get to this, but if you trust him, if you let him, he might be doing his very best work right there to heal. You see, there are several kinds of doubt. There's deconstructive doubt and reconstructive doubt. And I'm not claiming to be an expert on this. This is mostly observation. Deconstructive doubt tears down. Reconstructive doubt can build up. And there's a time for everything. But I did notice that when Florence and I did our home remodel, it, deconstruction took one week. Reconstruction took one year. Deconstruction's kind of fun. You're tearing stuff down. You're pulling stuff down. You're kind of getting your energy out. You see change really, really quickly. There's a time for deconstruction. But you need to beware because you don't want to live in a deconstructed house with no reconstruction. Deconstruction's quick. Reconstruction takes a long time. Deconstruction is relatively not that skilled of labor. You need to be able to handle a hacksaw and a hatchet and a mallet. Reconstruction takes skill to make something beautiful. So the warning I think we get is if deconstruction, there's a time for it. 
if part of that deconstructive doubt is a coping mechanism or a defense mechanism because you've been hurt, maybe you need to keep the shell on for a little while and tear some stuff down. I get that. But beware that living there can paralyze you. Living there can make you a more bitter, cynical, closed-off person. It can stifle growth. See, reconstruction takes hard work and patience, but it builds something more beautiful. It builds something more strong. It builds something that you can delight to live in. As an illustration of this, we see in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, and this is one of the things I love about the Gospel writers, is they are honest about the doubts that the community had even when they were looking at the resurrected Jesus. So we just saw Thomas. In Matthew 28, it says that when Jesus' disciples, his closest friends, when they saw him resurrected on that hill, it said they worshipped him. But some of them doubted. Right there. The earliest worshiping community of the resurrected Christ had doubts right in its core, and Jesus says, peace be with you. You see, one type of doubt can paralyze you and make you stay home, make you not explore, make you get complacent. They could have said, someone could have said to them, Jesus has risen from the dead, come and see, and that, that paralyzing doubt would have said, I doubt it, I'm not even going to try. I'm not even going, I've got better things to do, I'm busy, I'm not even going to explore it. That's that paralyzing doubt. But that energizing doubt could have gone this way. And I think this is what happened in Matthew 28. Come and see Jesus, he's risen from the dead. And they probably said, I doubt it, but I'm going to see for myself if this is true. I'm going to let my questions propel me forward to test these things out. It takes far more effort, far more energy, far more intentionality, and yet that's where the deeper life and connection is found. I saw this in the life of our church a couple years ago when this fantastic couple came in as a result of a family member of theirs who they'd been estranged from for a long, long time. And they ran into this family member on the street, and the family member said, come, you have to see this church that has changed my life. And this couple said, we doubt it. We sincerely doubt that this person has changed at all. We're going to call his bluff and show up at this church and reveal that it's not actually true. And they walked through these doors, and lo and behold, was a church that welcomed them and loved them and cared for them, and they're a part of this church to this day. But if they would have chosen to simply say, I doubt it, I'm staying home, there's a whole chapter of their life that would be written in a different way. But because they allowed their doubts to propel them forward, they ended up in a more connected, more alive community where they are being reunited with God and reconnected with each other and redirected outward in mission to serve the world, not to mention reconciled with their family member. So the whole thing is, doubt is not the enemy of faith. Doubt can be used as fuel if you let it. The question is, how can you let your questions press you closer to Jesus? That's my invitation, that's my comfort, and that's my challenge to you. Let your questions, are you even aware of what they are? Write them down. Have a conversation with a trusted friend. Join the community group that meets on Wednesday night as all questions are fair game. But don't let it just paralyze you. Let it propel you forward. Jesus meets Thomas' doubts with patience. He also meets them with grace. 
As Thomas is thinking, he's seen me at my worst. He's seen me at my failure, and he still loves me. I remember preaching on a passage in Mark chapter 9. There's a place where there's a boy who is just deathly, deadly ill, tormented. Nothing's going well in this boy's life. The dad is terrified, caring for his son, turns to Jesus and says, do something for my son if you can. Jesus says, if I can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And the father's response, which I think is one of the purest expressions of faith, is, I believe. Help my unbelief. I do trust, but not all the way. Is that enough? And Jesus honored him and cared for his son. I preached on that sermon, and there was an older gentleman in the back of the church. He was here visiting his kids. He had had his own church out of town and was an elder at that church for years and years. And he came up to me afterward and said, do you mind if we have coffee? I said, absolutely. And so over coffee, he shared with me as though he was confessing one of his deepest, darkest secrets. I have questions. I have doubts. I have parts of the Bible story that I just don't fully understand. If I shared that at my church, they'd ask me not to be the elder anymore. And I smiled and said, welcome to the human experience of following Jesus. Welcome to the communion of saints who have gone before us. The good news is Jesus is not afraid of your questions. Doubts are actually the doorway to discovery if you allow it to propel you forward. But don't stagnate. And that man entered into a whole new level of joy, belonging, and understanding. And was given back to his church as a gift. Not afraid, able to look the world in in the eye and stand tall. Jesus greets Thomas' doubts with his wounds. See the vulnerability with which Jesus meets Thomas in Thomas' moment of questions. Jesus does not come saying, obey or else. He comes vulnerably with his wounds. You know, my kids, these three boys are growing up to be these tough guys, but one of the most vulnerable moments is whenever one of them gets a wound. And they decide, first they don't want to let me see it. And when they finally decide, I trust you and I'll let you see this wound because I believe that whatever you do with it will help me get better. That's a moment of connection and intimacy and vulnerability. Often we think about us bringing our wounds to Christ so that we could be healed. But look, Jesus is going first, showing his wounds to Thomas. And that's what I think melted Thomas's heart. Is Jesus, God in the flesh, not merely coming with power and might, but God who was pierced on his behalf. God who was wounded for him. And I wonder if once we see Jesus' wounds, we begin to trust him more with ours. See how he's been wounded for our healing. We can trust him with our wounds. He gives us grace in our doubts. He also gives peace in our fear. Don't miss that when Jesus goes to his friends and followers, the disciples, the doors were locked. In fact, it says the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. It is worth noting that not too long after this, when Christianity becomes the majority religion in the Roman Empire, it will be the Jews who are hiding behind locked doors. Because this is the way the world operates. 
The stronger goes after the weaker. It's us against them. We scapegoat the other in this unending cycle of violence and hiding and locked doors. And Jesus goes and stands right in the middle of it. Interrupting the cycle of violence and hiding. Transforming society on the communal level but also transforming us on the individual level as he comes and says in verse 21, peace be with you. Elsewhere he says, I give you peace, my peace I give you, I give you peace not as the world gives, which begs the question, how does the world give peace? There are billions of dollars spent on marketing and ad campaigns to promise you that you can have peace in your life. If you have the right car, or the right home, or the right vacation, or the right clothes, or the right makeup, then you can have peace. If you have the right spouse, or the right kids, or if things aren't going well with your spouse or your kids, if you had a different spouse, or different kids, you think, then I could have peace. If you got into Bitcoin early enough, or you adopted cryptocurrency early enough, or you had more followers on Instagram, or things were better with your boss, or you had more finances, then you'd have more peace. The problem is, we take good things, and we make them ultimate things, and they ultimately fail us because they're not designed to give us peace deep within our lives. So instead, we put demands on our career and our partner and our kids and our finances. We put demands on it that it must make us whole, and it ultimately fails us, leaving us exhausted and anxious. And Jesus comes and walks in the midst of that and says, I give you peace, not as the world gives. I give you peace that comes because of my wounds that have been broken on your behalf. I give you peace that walks into the locked room of your life, the places where you're trying to keep things out, and I'm coming in with my wholeness and care. I give you peace that is rooted in grace and patience. It's an entirely different kind of peace. Where do you need that kind of peace in your life right now? Might that become your prayer this week? As you articulate it, Jesus, I need your peace in this area of my life. He gives us peace in our fear. He also gives us strength in our weakness. See, the movement is over. Elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke, we learn that at one point the fishermen are going back to their day jobs. They're out fishing again. They're like, we're abandoning the whole work of the kingdom of God. We saw Jesus crucified. It's all over. Here in John 20, what we just read, the disciples are locked in fear. Everything's over. Everything's done. The movement is finished. And Jesus walks right in the midst of all of their dashed hopes and dreams. When the most brilliant strategist cannot figure out a 10-point plan to get from here to there because there is no bridge to the future, Jesus walks in the midst of that and says, I'm the bridge to the future. When it feels like hopes are dashed and it is a dead end and there are no options, Jesus says, you saw me on the cross where it was literally a dead end and there were no options and I have even conquered that through my resurrection. See, that's why you can have grace in your doubts. That's why you can have peace in your fear. 
That's why you can have strength in your weakness. Christianity is not merely the opiate of the masses. This beautiful myth we've all agreed on for thousands of years that somehow makes us feel better, that will never comfort or challenge you in the most trying times. The earliest church went through persecution and sorrow and hardship. And the reason they could do it is they'd say, because we saw the wounded, resurrected Jesus in our midst. And we trust that he's at work even now. When Thomas is confronted in the midst of his weakness, in the midst of his not getting it, with Jesus' patience and grace and comfort and challenge and wounds, how does he respond? He responds with one of the most powerful Christian declarations in all of Scripture. My Lord and my God. Lord and God were titles for Yahweh, the ultimate creator of heaven and earth. But it's not just God and Lord that is powerful and over there. It's my Lord and my God. That God is not only ultimate, but God's intimate. That he is actually known and loved by the one who created the heavens and the earth. And that God would never leave him or forsake him. God doesn't just love Thomas generally as God loves humanity. God loves Thomas specifically. And it melts his heart. He drops all of his conditions. Notice he had conditions in the beginning. I need to see the nail marks. I need to see the gash. Jesus comes and meets him in those conditions. And note, Thomas never did follow through with his demands. See, we come to Jesus with conditions. Jesus, I will trust you if you give me the spouse that I want. Jesus, I'll trust you if you take care of my finances. Jesus, I'll trust you if you take care of my career. I'll trust you if you take care of my health. These are not bad things. But whenever you say, Jesus, I will follow you if X, Jesus is not God in that equation. X is In other words, instead of asking, instead of meeting God for God's own goodness and relationship in your life, we end up using Jesus as a means to an end, to get us the things we want. And when you do that, first of all, I understand, because I play that game as well, but that's never how you will meet the Savior of this world. And note for Thomas, when he saw how he was loved, he dropped his conditions. He was sent in a new direction altogether. Which brings us to the final part. That as we receive grace in our doubts and peace in our fear and strength in our weaknesses, we're sent out in a new direction altogether. On one hand, we do it as a community. Scripture constantly comes. The Bible comes. The history of the church comes and says, don't try this alone. Thomas missed an encounter with Jesus that first time around because he was not at the community gathering. You miss something of the kingdom when you choose to go alone. So commit to community. Whether it's Renew Church, whether it's another church, wherever you go, commit to a community because that's where the growth happens. We are committed to making this a church community where you are welcomed, wanted, have a place to belong and grow and serve and flourish together. 
So maybe a step for that today would be to let me know you want to be more involved or to hit the contact button on the website and say, I want to join the community group on Wednesday nights. But take that next step. Let it propel you. Commit to community. See how patient he is with you. See his wounds on your behalf. And be sent out in mission. He said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. How did the Father send Jesus? To sacrificially pour his life out on our behalf. So what does it look like for you in your social circles, in your spheres of influence, in your neighborhood, in your family, to pour yourself out on behalf of others? In John 3.16, it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only beloved son so whoever, whoever would believe in him would never die but would have eternal life. What would it look like for people to be able to say, for God so loved the world that he sent you so that everyone who knew you would know something of the goodness and wholeness and forgiveness and grace and mercy of God. What would that look like this week? Friends, may we respond as we see Jesus' wounds, as we see his grace. May we respond as we see him moving toward us, particularly in the midst of our questions. And may we be propelled outward to move toward others. Let's pray. Gracious God, we can identify with Thomas. We have questions. We have parts of our lives or parts of our world that we wish we could just snap our fingers and change. We have unresolved tension. We have fears and we have failures. We have all of these things swirling around us and you cut right through all of it into the locked door of our heart and you say, peace be with you. Help us to identify our doubts and our questions, to own them to articulate them, and to allow that to propel us to know you more. Help us be a community that walks with one another as that first community walked with Thomas in love and hope. Help us to be redirected outward as the Father has sent you, so you send us. Make that concrete and specific for us this week as we seek to be your very hands and feet wherever we go. We pray these things for our good and your glory. Amen. Friends, we continue in our worship through a time of offering, which on one hand is an act of worship as everything we give uh, is a part of us saying, all of my gifts, all of my treasure, all my resources are a gift from God. So we give freely and joyfully and generously and sacrificially. Offering is also an act of mission, as everything we give goes to fund this church's mission to renew our neighborhood, our city, and our world. So if you choose to join in the offering, you can do that on the, online at the church's website. Just hit the Give button where it's all encrypted and uh, secure in that way. And offering goes far beyond our finances and our resources in that way. It's a way of us thinking about our entire lives, all that we have, all that we are, being poured out on behalf of this world that God loves so much. So with that in mind, let's commit our offering to God. If you're following along, we're on page six as we pray our offering prayer. God of all peoples and God of all places, we present these offerings that they may be used to extend your liberating reign in San Diego and throughout the world. With them, we also offer our time, our abilities, and our varied ministries 
that each of us may be a part of your answer to the cries of the world. Amen. come to a time of confession, listen to these words from Psalm 94. Unless the Lord had given me help, I would soon have dwelt in the silence of death. When I said, my foot is slipping, your love, O Lord, supported me. When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought joy to my soul. For Christians, a time of confession is a time of telling the truth about ourselves the ways that we've not always gotten it right, not always acted right or thought right or spoken correctly or well of others. But it's always done in the context of a bigger truth, a bigger story. Note, when our foot is slipping, what is God doing? 
supporting us. When we're filled with anxiety, what is God doing? Consoling us. And so confession is a time of remembering God's support and consolation in our lives. Even now as we pray the prayer of confession on page 8. Loving God, we confess that we are an anxious people who deny your blessing and fail to keep your word. Forgive us, we pray, for these and all our sins, that we might live in peace and reflect your love in the world. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Let's take a few moments of silent confession to make this prayer your own. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. Hear our prayers and grant us your peace. Amen.